So we're going to be moving around just a little bit. Mostly we're going to be in the book of Revelation, but we'll be touching a little in Psalm, Psalm 2, and Daniel, Daniel chapters 2 and 7. Um, G.K. Beale, who's the author of this book we're going to, again, called Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. So G.K. Beale's, he's um, really appreciate his, his ministry in, in, in providing. Thank you. Um, so it's rich commentary. Um, we relied on it heavily as a church when we went through the book of Revelation, uh, Beale's Insights. Um, and you're going to get to hear a lot of those um, repackaged this morning uh, under the theme of irony. So I, I expect that you'll enjoy it. There is so much here that um, I have to break it into two. So we'll be finishing it up next week. All right. So with that, um, we are going to be covering uh, the following um, these are the, uh, the subheadings that we're going to get covered this morning. You can see that it's quite a bit. Um, early time view of the end time. What did uh, the Old Testament, those in the Old Testament think of when, what did Israel think of when the end times, when the latter days, the last days were being discussed? What, what came to their minds? What did they expect? We're going to be talking about the kingdom of the end times, the irony of Christ's end time kingdom, Christ's end time kingdom in the book of Revelation, the shepherd's ironic staff, um, iron staff or iron rod, and then Christ the end time king. And then, like I said, we'll come back next week and cover a few more. All right, so the word eschatology. Um, the word eschatology um, comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means end or last, and logos, or logos, says some, you can pronounce it either way, uh, meaning the study of. Uh, therefore, eschatology means the study of the things pertaining to the end times, the last times of the Bible. Um, the big question is, what are the last times? Um, again, very grateful for uh, Beale's work on this, and uh, it's going to be relying heavily upon what he has to say here in this chapter as uh, what I present this morning. Well, the aim this morning is to see the eschatological theme of Christ's victory in reign that was initiated in his death and his resurrection, consummating in his second coming. So our, our view from an earthly perspective is going to be contrasted with the irony of spiritual realities. And that's where Beale wants to draw our attention, is this irony of the spiritual realities. Things that our eye can't see. And so... With that, let's talk about this first subheading, an early time view of the end time. So what did people in the Old Testament era consider when the topic of the end times came up? You know, what did the Old Testament attest to 
in regard to this. Um, let's look at one of the, the, the first instances, really, in Scripture where, where it comes about this is in Genesis 49. This is where Jacob is getting his sons together, and he has some final words to tell them. He says, gather together that I may tell you what shall happen in the days to come. So he prophesies, if you remember uh, what's going on in here, Jacob prophesies what happened to the 12 tribes of Israel, through his 12 sons, his, through his sons, focus being upon the tribe of Judah. The future Messiah would come from that tribe. Now, did they understand that completely when that was first uttered by Jacob? Um, I don't know. Perhaps they did. I mean, they always were looking for the offspring. And so um, you could argue, yes, they, would, they could see this. Did they fully realize it? Did Judah? Um, I don't know about that. Um, so that's the first instance we have here. In 49, just nine verses later in verse 10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So this is what Jacob's saying. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Again, you know, God's promises to Abraham realized and reiterated in Isaac and in Jacob's own life, and these patriarchs of this promised seed would come. It is clear it's coming through Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. In Isaiah chapter 2, it speaks of the mountain of the house of the Lord. Here's another instance in the Old Testament that, that speaks about the end times because it says the mountain of the house of the Lord being established in the latter days. And it's talking about how a nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war in the latter days that Isaiah is talking about. Hosea, later, he, well, more of a contemporary really, adds to that prophecy stating that in the last days, not only will the Lord reign, but there will also be a Davidic king ruling with him. So some clarity is being brought in, as is normal that we see with the teachings of the prophets, bringing clarity to teaching. I mentioned that we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Well, the book of Daniel is, is key, Beal tells us, is key to understanding what Scripture has to say about the end times. First, we, the first really big scene in the book of Daniel where there's some drama going on, um, besides the, you know, should we eat the, the food or the vegetables, is the dream with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he's not a very reasonable man at all. So we see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That's talked about in chapter 2 of Daniel. And this great statue that's composed of four different metals. Remember that? All these four levels, this, this statue bring, is brought down and destroyed by a single stone. Now those sections... Those metallic sections refer to earthly kingdoms. Those kingdoms are Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, the Median, the um, uh, 
Yes, Medo-Persia, that's right. Uh, Greece and Rome, those four. Each of these would be destroyed by God, that single stone. Well, in the dream, it's foretold that in the days of those kings, God's everlasting kingdom will be set up and it will last forever. So that's kind of an understanding they have right now. It's, it's building and they're developing their understanding of what these last times will look like, these last days. When I say they, I mean Israel. In Daniel chapter 10, as well as we'll find, you can find in other places in the Old Testament, we find that phrase, latter days. And it's referring to a collapse of an earthly kingdom. Again, we see those four that we talked about. Persia, uh, and then the coming of the Greece's glory days. Beale explains, he says, the, latter, the idea of the latter days in the Old Testament. It primarily refers to the coming establishment of God's eternal kingdom. So that's its primary purpose, that about God's coming kingdom. There's more to what you see around here. God is a God of justice, God of wrath. And it's about that kingdom that's going to be set up by the Messiah, that, that promised seed, that offspring. And so it, the focus we see a lot in the last days, even through the Old Testament, is a final defeat of evil. Surely they would view these kingdoms, Israel viewed these four kingdoms represented in this statue as ungodly kingdoms. They were idol worshipers. So the destruction of those kingdoms and the setting up of God's permanent rule in an everlasting kingdom. This is discussed in the Old Testament. And it's going to be done by an outward force. That's also key to understand, to their understandings, that it will be done through an outward force. Again, that stone that comes in and breaks them down. The reason why this is important, because it helps us understand why later Jewish interpreters of these passages and other similar passages in the Old Testament... They, they understand the Messiah as a military conqueror who defeats Israel's enemy in battle. That's their understanding by far amongst the Jews. That the Messiah was uh, predominantly thought of as a military leader who would conquer their, their oppressors. We can see that, that view is apparent when you read some of the other Jewish writings um, as well, not just what's in the Bible. In Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7, uh, these chapters were very influential in molding their thoughts of this future deliverer. Um, one, one of the other writings of, from the Jews, of course, that's not in Scripture, some written around... 180 era in the first century um, it gives its own interpretation of this prophecy in Daniel and it looks at the son of man who's Daniel talks about how the son of man would assault would would attack assault the multitudes with 
quote, fiery streams and a fiery breath would come out of his mouth and defeat his enemies, defeat their foes. Beale argues, he says, um, although that this may be a metaphorical picture of how the Messiah was to defeat the wicked, it nonetheless refers to a, a very forceful destruction. There, hence that military mindset that they have. Okay, So the consensus among the Jews at this time was um, when it talks about the, the prophecy of the latter days in the Old Testament, um, it was a forceful overthrow of the wicked rulers by the Messiah and then who would come and set up God's kingdom on earth. You can kind of see how their wheels would have been turning and some of the questions that they had, what we read about in the Gospels, when they were trying to understand the Christ. Uh, their reaction to Jesus. They, some of them wanted to set him up as king. You remember that sometimes. And Jesus, aware of this, would skirt away, knowing that they would try to do that. Of course, that would be happy with the devil. You know, Christ not giving up himself as a ransom for many. They wanted to set him up as king and defeat Rome. That was their understanding of what would happen in the latter days. The glory days would come back and we'll get it right this time. Not like our fathers. That's why some of the Pharisees were wanting him to prove what he was saying according to this understanding. But the Lord did not give them that understanding. They were blinded. You know, Jesus was the foretold coming Messiah who would defeat the powers to be. But his focus, Christ's focus, at least in his first advent, was on the lines of spiritual warfare. Spiritual defeat. And that's the point what we're going to get out of this chapter here. It's a, a truly far more serious battle than the Jews in Jesus' time had comprehended. A spiritual warfare. Because look what it cost. Look what it cost, the death of our Savior. All right, so let's look at the kingdom of the end times. Um, in in Jesus' time on earth, they, we know the Jews suffered under the heavy hand of Rome. Some had it better than others. Some, like the Pharisees, just wanted to appease them and keep it going because they had some semblance of power. At least that's what they thought. So besides their earlier domination uh, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the domination of Rome was kind of like the worst of times for them. The worst of times. That's how Beale describes it. But what they couldn't see was the spiritual realities of that time. Because if they could see that, they would understand it was truly the best of times. It was the long-awaited hope that some faithful waited for and got to see. Christ coming into the world to save man from a far worse fate than Rome could ever deliver. Considering that's the dominion of Satan himself. Saving the... Um, his people from the dominion of Satan himself. Uh, New Testament 
writers, they often believe that the end times had begun in their own generation. You can read that when you're looking at the likes of Peter and the like. So Peter declares that the Christian's redemption, he says, has already taken place in these last times for the sake of you who, through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's already starting to take place. It's been inaugurated through Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies about the latter days were beginning to be fulfilled. But ironic to human wisdom, it wouldn't be through an overturning of earthly military powers. Wouldn't happen the way the majority of the Jews thought it would. Instead, the end times were beginning through Christ's spiritual defeat of the invisible forces of evil. This irony of the end times. Christ ironically defeated satanic forces spiritually by allowing himself to be nailed to the cross. And it is in this ironic manner that the end times begin. Consequently, the end times or the latter days that we're talking about here, again, contrary to the Jewish hopes, it doesn't refer to an initial blissful period when all of God's enemies are completely exterminated and God's kingdom is established throughout all the earth. That's not the reality. That was never God's plan. Beale writes, What appeared to be the worst of times in Christ's crucifixion was instead the best of times. Ironically, as evil forces seem to be winning victories on earth, they are, in reality, losing spiritual battles. When the forces of God appear to be losing physical battles, and we know what that looks like, right? When God's people appear to be losing physical battles, we're truly winning in the spiritual realm. As we we stay faithful in Christ. So... For the majority of the Jews, if the first century in which they lived was the beginning of the end times, it was certainly opposite to what they believe that those times would bring to them. Uh, They were too wise, really, too wise to believe such foolishness, which helps us understand, I think, a little bit more of their doubt of Jesus. All right. So let's move on to the next subheading, the irony of Christ's end-time kingdom. The irony of Christ's end-time kingdom. Um, Beale, he writes this, he explains that through his suffering and death, Jesus began to reign spiritually over Satan and his demonic forces. At the time of his first coming, he did not rule physically. Therefore, that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about the, the messianic son of man who would come and rule over the earth, 
That was fulfilled initially in Christ's ironic rule through the suffering during his earthly ministry and his active obedience and his passive obedience that what appeared to be a defeat on the cross, but it was a victory. Again, these four empires in, in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7, they were destroyed by the stone that was cut without human hands, as Scripture dis- describes it, by Jesus Christ, in a spiritual sense, through the cross. Even though it doesn't say it verbatim in Daniel chapter 7, it is the Son of Man who judges these kingdoms. But the question is, how could Christ, the Son of Man, destroy all four of these empires through his one spiritual victory on the cross? Especially when you're looking at it from an earthly perspective. Well, the beginning of the answer, Bill argues, he says, it lies in the scriptural fact that all four of these empires had Satan as their ultimate ruler. He's the prince of the power of the air. You're reading Daniel and it talks about these, um, the, the prince of Persia, this, this evil demonic force and the prince of Greece coming and how this angel that met with with Daniel was saying that, you know, if it weren't for Michael, and Michael was the only one that came and helped me, the archangel, these spiritual battles that are happening, it's a spiritual reality. It's a spiritual reality. When Jesus, the stone, this, this stone uncut by human hands, defeated Satan on the cross, he defeated the contemporary world power, Rome as well as those three previous kingdoms. So that's the view, and that's the reality of our New Testament contemporary writers. That's the reality. Let's talk now about um, Christ's end-time kingdom in the book of Revelation. All right? So the word revelation, sometimes you see it is called the apocalypse, it comes from a Greek term that means simply to unveil, to uncover or, or reveal as a simple meaning. That's why the, the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, this book uncovers for us heavenly interpretations of earthly events. It is largely figurative. Highly figurative. You know, the event upon which Revelation primarily focuses on is Christ's death. That's the primary focus on Christ's death and his resurrection and what the effects would, that would, has on mankind. Actually, what we read in, in Revelation, it doesn't really assert anything profoundly new from what the rest of the New Testament already declares to be true regarding the irony here, the irony surrounding Jesus' death and what are truly the amazing implications. 
So what Revelation does do, largely, is expand upon this theme. That's what we see primarily in the book of Revelation. Bill comments, he says, We are shown in Revelation more fully how the irony of Christ's eschatological kingship relates to the life of the Christian believer. That's what it's relating to. Um, Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. I'm going to look at verses 13 and 14. I already kind of talked about this passage, this piece here. Um, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the words that we see here in that text, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It's a very regal scene we have here. It refers to the ascension to the throne of the Son of Man. Now, the Gospels show in detail exactly how this prophesied ascension to the throne was fulfilled. You know, Christ's approach to the throne consisted in, again, his act of obedience, including his three-year ministry. That was characterized by suffering. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to rest his head. All the ridicule, trying to stone him, was characterized by suffering, by poverty, by humility. The Son of God taking on flesh, being mocked, spat at, all coming to a climax in his death and then his ascension to heaven at the right hand of God to that throne. We see that in the Gospels. We see that Christ's only way to enthronement was through the way of the cross. Foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God. The first, the initial verses in the book of Revelation describe how Jesus, ironically, how he gains his kingship through suffering of death. In Revelation 1 verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Firstborn of the dead. You know, although his, the Lord's kingship can't be seen with the naked eye and it's certainly unrecognized by the world's rulers, he nonetheless rules over them in an invisible spiritual manner. And accomplishes his sovereign will through them. 
providence of God still remains. Supernatural events, according to his will, still can happen and do. Part of the irony irony here is that though he doesn't appear to be ruling over evil world tyrants, he, he is actually doing that at every single moment. He directs the hearts of kings, scripture tells us. You know, we pray for those folks every Sunday. He directs their hearts. He uses them. He uses their sin. We know this. He reigns even now, even though you couldn't, you don't see it from the naked eye. It takes a spiritual eye to see this. You know, Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, this began to fulfill what Daniel predicted in his book in Daniel chapter 7. That one like the Son of Man would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Bill, he says, that's why it's clear that John in the book of Revelation understood the end times spoken through Daniel would begin with Christ's first coming. His first coming. The, this eschatological period would continue on the earth and in heaven until Christ's second coming. Now, most Jews could not believe that the long-awaited end time of the kingdom of the Messiah had arrived because, again, their inability to perceive in ironic ways, the ironic nature of God's plan, they'd live by sight. They did not live by faith. They couldn't bring themselves to believe opposite of what their eyes were telling them. Hence the irony. All right, the shepherd's ironic iron staff or his iron rod. So this is, we see in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, it is foretold that of a time when God's anointed, when his son will reign as king, all the way back in the time of David. Let's read verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2. It says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now there's a couple of things to gather here about this, this coming king from David's perspective. First, his rule will be worldwide. I'll make the nations your heritage. Second, he will have to defeat an enemy first. He's going to have to defeat an enemy first before setting up his kingdom. The Jews, again, believed that this would be fulfilled in a very physical way. That, that they could see for themselves. And John... John writes in Revelation 2. He's referring back to this in Psalm 2. But something here to see. His take is a little bit different. John's take is a little bit different when he cites Psalm 2. It's certainly different than what the Jews believed. John writes in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 2 of Revelation. The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. 
even as I myself have received authority from my father. I underline that portion that he's citing from Psalm 2. But what I want you to see here is how John is applying this prophecy to the lives of Christians. The one who conquers. It's already been introduced as we read in the book of Revelation. Jesus is talking about these churches. In fact, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus is actually the one doing the talking here. This is a Jesus talking. If we did the red letter text, this would be in red right now. This is Jesus talking. Beale, he writes that, what, what does Christ mean by applying the prophecy from Psalm 2 to the lives of Christians? He asks that question. It's a crucial one. Since the psalm is a prophecy of how the Messiah would reign over a world kingdom. And there, there's no reference to the saints reigning with him in Psalm 2. Well, Jesus' intent, Beal argues, is to tell Christians that if they persevere in their faith until death, they will be rewarded by reigning with Jesus over a kingdom that has already been established. At the end of Revelation 2, verse 27, here up on the screen, Jesus affirms that he has begun to fulfill the psalm's prophecy. He has already received authority from his father. After saying that Christians can receive the ruling power that's promised first in Psalm 2, Jesus tells them that on what basis they're able to obtain it from the Father. He has received that authority from the Father. And he's begun to fulfill it, that prophecy from Psalm 2. And because of this, it's because of this, Christians who are in union with him will also be enabled to reign now and into the future. The 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 ruler's staff or the ruler's rod may have an ironic purpose in both of these passages, Psalm and Revelation, in regards to those who trust in Christ and the Messiah. It is a rod of protection for those who are shepherded by Christ, shepherd, shepherded tenderly by him. But those who resist him, who are in rebellion to him, that same rod becomes a weapon by which the ruler destroys them. This, the word rule that's talking about these passages, it can be translated as shepherd. You know, in fact, Bill argues it's, it's a better translation to use the word shepherd instead of break or rule. So... Just some insight here, really, to the, to the ironic nuance that we can find here. That, that rod of iron, how it is something that protects us, but it is, destroys the wicked. All right. Christ the end-time king. 
In Revelation 5, verses 5 through 7, it explains in more detail the precise manner in which Jesus inaugurates his kingdom. So let's see this up on the screen. It says, in, starting in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, said to me, see that I underlined that, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. In verse 5 here, John, he hears a heavenly voice. The elders said to me, he hears a heavenly voice saying that Jesus is a lion who has conquered. But when John sees, when he sees with with a a vision of this divine conqueror, what does he see? He sees a lamb standing as if slain. He hears one thing and he sees something that is a bit ironic. He hears of this conqueror and he sees a lamb standing as though, as if slain. You know, why is there this difference in what John hears about Christ versus what he sees? That the lion image in verse 5, it comes from what we first read in Genesis 49, verse 9. This lion from the tribe of Judah. Where the Messiah is portrayed as destroying his enemies, apparently destroying his enemies in a physical manner. That's what it appears like. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? But what he sees is a slain lamb. The, the slain lamb picture, which you can also see in Isaiah 53. It talks about that as well. But the slain lamb picture, Beale says, interprets this messianic prophecy by showing that the Messiah's conquering of evil was to begin in an ironic and spiritual manner, in a spiritual way, not a physical. So again, we see that that Jesus began to win a victory over Satan and his forces spiritually through permitting himself to be slain physically on the cross. The lamb standing as if slain. That the cross itself was a victory even, even before the resurrection. It's clear from Revelation chapter 5. You know, turn there real quick if you haven't already. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. talks about singing a new song here 
This is where, where Christ is said to have purchased with his blood at the cross men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And made them to be a kingdom. Oh, this is accomplished in his death. With the blood at the cross. All of this was ironically accomplished through his death, but was guaranteed to be effectual by his resurrection. So the irony of Jesus' ascended condition, it is stressed by this portrayal of a lamb standing as if slain. You know, he was slain. Christ was slain, yet he was made to stand. He was made to stand through the resurrection. The lamb standing as if slain. He appears as slaughtered, yet at the same time he is standing strong. That's the, the spiritual reality. It was accomplished at the cross in his first coming. Establishing the beginning of the last days. All right, we're going to stop there um, next week. Some good stuff, too. I promise you. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer.